welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Before launching her popular blog, One Good Thing by Jelly, Heber City resident Jill Neistel was a newscaster battling a long list of demons. Suffering from postpartum anxiety and struggling to care for her four children, including a young son with celiac disease and diabetes, Neistel turned to food and alcohol for comfort. Her alcohol consumption eventually spiraled into an addiction that nearly cost her her family. Finally, after year-long marital separation and a hard look at herself in rehab, she realized that she needed to turn her life around, and she began simply blogging about one good thing each day. Well, that turned into a very popular blog, very popular website. One Good uh, Thing by Julie uh, uh, receives 4.6 million monthly page views, and she's a 2013 Parents Magazine Blog Award winner. Her work's been featured on People.com, Oprah.com, Huffington Post, and many other uh, publications online uh, uh, places. Time Out for Women also has featured her. Nysel lives in uh, Heber City with her husband Dave and their children. She joins me now for Access Utah. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. It's nice to be here. So Heber City, beautiful, beautiful place. Oh, my goodness. I love it here. We moved here about 20 years ago from California, and I tell everyone I'm never leaving. <laughs> we, uh, my mother lives in Vernal, and I, I keep telling her she needs to, needs to move to Heber, if, if not up here to Logan, so that it cuts my trip in half. But I, I've, I've, I love... <laughs> that uh, would cut it the, considerably. <laughs> it would. Love Heber City. Uh, so um, the, the uh, I imagine you uh, never imagined that uh, one good thing would, would hit the way it has. Absolutely not. I I never in my wildest dreams thought that it would even, you know, be a, something that I could make into a career or a job. It was really just as a creative outlet and kind of something to help me to heal and to move on in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's one big community. Is it, it seems to be increasing. Oh, yes. It, it, it's just mind-boggling when you think about it. When I look at the numbers and the analytics, it's just, they're big numbers, but to me it still feels like, you know, it's just a group of friends hanging out, but it's very impressive when you look at those people from all over the world that mm-hmm. are that are uh, reading and, and taking part in the conversation. And it's everything from, uh, you know, life advice to, 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 to marriage things to what you've learned from your parents to this one. This one stood out to me. Maybe I'll pull this forward. I was going to mention it later. You can unshrink your clothes. I didn't know this was possible. <laughs> Sounds like magic, right? It does. Um, I didn't realize it was either until I had accidentally shrunk one of my favorite pair of pants and... I was like, oh, no, this just can't be. And so I did a little research and, and looked into it, and you really can unshrink your clothes. Um, it's a very easy process of just rewashing them with a little bit of soap and then you know, gently stretching them and letting them dry that way. And it might not work 100% of the time, depending on the fabric, but a lot of clothes can um, be unshrunk. Okay, that's uh, I'm yeah I'm going to check that out. It's uh, it's in it's in the book. You have some greatest hits. So this is the last chapter in the book here. Uh, the book, by the way, is One Good Life, and it's out from uh, Putnam uh, right now. We're talking with uh, Jill Neistel, who's Heber City resident, and uh, writes the uh, very popular website One Good Thing by Jilly. Uh, so I want to uh, do just a very a quick uh, thumbnail sketch of your life. Come back to some of those points. Uh, your parents are, are from Utah. By the way, there's a very cute picture of them. They're in their 80s in, in the book. Uh, so from Kanash and Fillmore, I believe. Yes. Um, they grew up um, in Kanash and Fillmore, right, basically next door to each other. I think they're separated by a tiny town called Meadow. Uh, both went to Millard High School and... Um, when they got married, they decided to try something new, make a new start in Southern California. And so that's where me and my five five siblings were all born and raised. And then, oddly enough, one by one, we've all moved back to Utah, except for one brother. <laughs> you're, you're back. <laughs> and your, your dad, um, I get, you know, against the odds, unexpectedly, you might might say, uh, hit it big in business. His, his business took off and... You guys ended up living in a in a pretty nice place. It did. Um, you could say that the entrepreneurial spirit runs deep in our family. Um, we we come from entrepreneurs. We all seem to gravitate towards that path. He 
he didn't graduate from college. He did go to Utah State for a while and played football there with Lavelle Edwards. And um, all right, but then yeah, yeah, they're they're still good friends. And then he started his own electrical contracting business, um, basically knocking on doors, door to door in California, uh, drumming up work, and built it to the point where he actually was the electrical contractor for the Tom Bradley terminal at LAX. So wow. that was kind of at the zenith of his career and did very, very well for himself there. And you lived in a place that I think was colloquially known as, what, Pillbox Hill or something? A lot of doctors lived there. <laughs> yes, we. Um, when I was about eight, I think, we moved um, out of our modest tract home into a gated community, which I thought was pretty amazing. And it was called Bixby Hills, but it was, People referred to it as Pillbox Hill because there were so many doctors that lived there, um, and us because at that point my dad, you know, had had pretty much arrived and had done very well and, and was reaping the benefits of that. And you say you always were a I don't know a performer. You always wanted to. I guess broadcasting was was I guess not a totally out there as a career choice as it turned out. Yeah, it, it kind of all came together in college. I did always love um, performing in, you know, from grade school on. And so when I went to college, I kind of assumed that was the path I would go. And I was looking into like children's theater or theater. But when I got to college, I just, I don't know, I didn't fit in with the theater crowd. And another of my passions growing up was writing. And so I happened to enroll in a Journalism 101 class. Uh, really not even planning that as a career at all, but I was immediately bitten um, by the bug. I just, I loved the combination of, you know, the television, the excitement of that, and the writing, and it just, that was, I knew that that was what I wanted to do. By the way, uh, one of your early compositions as a child, uh, Dan, the life of a piece of chewing gum, uh, that stood out to me. <laughs> My mother is still proud of that. <laughs> it good. was, yes, one of my very early uh, works. <laughs> um, Day in the Lives of Piece of Chewing Gum. I just always, I had this, always had this constantly, and it still, you know, is somewhat of a curse today, but I constantly have this imagination, um, always thinking about what's going on and, you know, a chewing gum. You know, you never know what chewing gum is going to be going through and <laughs> after reading my piece, you do. That might indicate that, you know, you as a person, you probably don't run out of ideas. That's probably good in your career now. Absolutely. It is definitely a benefit. I, I get that question all the time, and I'm not, I guess people worry about that, but that's something I have never had a problem with. They, people will ask me, how do you, aren't you afraid you're going to run out of ideas? And I Absolutely, that is never a concern of mine. It's more of a how am I going to, you know, accomplish all of these ideas? How am I going to make them work or actually get them out on the blog? Um, but no, I just, the ideas just bombard me almost. By the way, we should mention the, the, your your college was BYU. Yes. I guess that's what that's where a lot of family members were going, so you, you thought, well, I'll go there too. Yeah, <laughs> it was kind of the thing to do. We are definitely... BYU fans, my parents, especially my dad, fanatics, if you uh, want to put it that way. And then my both of my brothers went, uh, my sister went, I followed suit. Um, my, that, my two younger sisters didn't end up going there, but yeah, it was kind of a, a family thing to do and um, just had the greatest experience there. Could not have asked for a better university to go to as far as broadcast journalism, which is ironic because that's not what I went there for, but it turned out to be you know, one of the best colleges I could have gone to for that. And then, of course, you graduate, and if you're going to find a job in you know television news, you you got to start somewhere small, and, and for you it was Bismarck, North Dakota. <laughs> I know, of all places, Southern California to Bismarck, North Dakota, the day after Christmas. Um, it was quite the shock to the system, but like you said, if you want to go into television news, you can do one of two things. You can be a small fish in a big pond. You know, you can start out in Salt Lake City or larger as, you know, working on the assignment desk, or you can choose to be a big fish in a small small mm -hmm. pond. And, and with my, you know, background trying, you know, kind of liking to perform and 
in the limelight, sort of. Um, I chose the latter and started out in Bismarck, North Dakota, of all places. And it just turned out to be the greatest place to to launch my career, especially since I ended up meeting my husband there. Yeah, you meet this dashing young man, Dave Neistel. He's from, I guess, uh, around that area? Yes, um, he was born and raised in Fargo, which um, is just borders Minnesota. It's about 250 miles east of there, and that was his first job in broadcast journalism as well. He's a uh, cameraman, or was yes. at that, that so, point? Yes, we would go out on stories together. I was a reporter, and he was a cameraman, and um, yeah, that's how we met. It was kind of exciting. One of the things you do is chase storms, I understand. Yes, he was a... <laughs> That was more his idea than mine. He's oh, okay. a big storm chaser. <laughs> he actually thought that that might be his career. You know, mm-hmm. He would pursue chasing storms around the world. Um, I was not so keen on it, but as a reporter, I kind of had to go where the stories were and along with him. And we were, went through some pretty scary, literal storms in mm-hmm. our life there. So you get married. He In the meantime, he converts to, to your church, Mormon church, right? And uh, and you, you start having kids, and he develops a business, right? And you become a, a homemaker. Is that what happened? Yes. Um, we both pursued our careers until we had our first child. We From Bismarck, we moved to the Twin Cities and both worked in television there. And then we had our first child. And then being near family was beckoning me, so we moved back to California I kind of dragged him with me, and he ended up starting his own um, television production company. And at that, and from that point on, I, I stayed home with my kids for mm. several years. So I want to uh, jump into uh, the beginnings of the of the problems. Of course, you know, no no family or marriage is perfect, but it it seems like at a certain point, uh, you describe it as kind of a midlife crisis started. Uh, started happening. Yes. I, you know, that's kind of a cliche way to put it, um, but it, it really was midlife, and it did end up being a crisis, so it's pretty accurate. I also describe it as kind of a perfect storm. Um, it was just, it was a time in my life when I was kind of unsettled. Uh, I was literally unsettled because we had moved um, from California to, to Utah um, to a very small town, so kind of a culture shock there. And um, problems with the marriage, problems with, you know, my son's um, diagnosis with diabetes, my issues with, I had foot issues, I had weight issues. You know, it was just, like I said, a, kind of a perfect storm at that point. What were, what were some of the, the problems in the marriage? I know uh, your husband was away a lot. He was trying to reestablish his business in Utah. Yes, he was. He was away a lot. Um, that was definitely contributing. And... Um, and I talk about it in the book, we just were lousy communicators, which is really ironic when you consider we both graduated in communication. We just weren't, um, you know, he, and he, we obviously had different expectations. I always say, you know, expectations are huge in any relationship. Um, he grew up with a very different um, example as far as, a marriage is concerned with his parents than I did with mine. My dad was very, you know, just put my mother on a pedestal, showered her with gifts, you know, and he just didn't have the same example growing up. So we had very different expectations. And I think after a certain amount of years and, and having children, those things started to become magnified at that mm-hmm. time in my life. Interesting. You write in the book that uh, you, as you think back, that your view of your parents' marriage was, uh, you know, kind of contributed here. You, know, they're, they're, you say that it wasn't perfect by any means, but it was, as you viewed it, idyllic. It was, it was a very good marriage. Right, right. And and I really do think that put Dave at a disadvantage um, because I really did view it as this idyllic relationship. And I'm sure, like you said, it 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 wasn't that way. But as a child, I think we do idealize our parents and. And I really felt like, you know, it wasn't fair. He had a lot to live up to as far as the way I imagined a marriage should be. And I just, I don't think either of us had realistic expectations. And we just weren't good communicators about that either, which made it even worse. And you had stresses. Your uh, youngest son had uh, had some problems, as you say, uh, diabetes. And for for one example, you had to get up in the middle of the night every night, right? uh... Oh, yeah. He, He was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when he was two years old. 
um, that was a major, major shock to to all of us and, and to our entire family's lifestyle because immediately, um, you know, I was kind of his 24-7 life support because I had to give him the shots. I had to test him because he was so little, and I had to make sure, you know, that his blood sugar wasn't too high, wasn't too low, and that meant middle-of-the-night blood check every night because... There is a very real concern of what they call dead in bed syndrome, and so I was just terrified of that. And so I would definitely um, check him every single night, usually about two o'clock in the morning, hmm. which led to lack of sleep, which was a whole, you know, another issue in my overall mental health at that time. So from the outside, you know, people could say, "Well, this is you know a wonderful situation, great husband, four kids, nice town, nice community," but but. But you're you're miserable. Yeah, I know. Very ironic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did. I felt like, and and on top of everything else, that made me feel, you know, bad about myself because I thought I should be happy. I have all these things. You know, what's wrong with me? Why am I not happy? And it was just very confusing. Mm. So, you know, each of us deals with problems in different ways. Uh, you say you turn to food and then to alcohol. What? Uh, what was what did you turn to alcohol for? What was it doing for you? Um, yes, yeah, so I definitely turned to food. After each child was born, I gained more and more weight. Um, at, at at one point, uh, after my fourth child was born, I was I was desperate, and so I turned to weight loss surgery, um, and that was very successful. And I lost a lot of weight and was very thin. But I had lost my um, food addiction. I was no longer able to turn to that. So I then turned to alcohol. Although, you know, that's a very simplified version of it. It was also me being a little bit, you know, trying to rebel at that time during the middle of my midlife crisis, so to speak. Um, It was just kind of a kind of help to numb some of the pain I was feeling and, you know, kind of smooth out the edges. But unfortunately for me, it was um, just the spark that my kind of obsessive, addictive personality needed, and I was off to the races with it. One of your messages is this can, this can happen to anybody. Absolutely. I, I look at my life before and after and during, and I just, I often, and still to this day, I'm like, how can that, how does this happen? I mean, how could it go from... So, you know, idyllic and and the quote-unquote perfect life to, you know, literally rock bottom where my life and my freedom was in danger. And it just can. It can happen to anybody. And and we have, and not just with alcohol, you know, life is just scary. You just never know what's around the corner for you. So you just can't ever judge anyone. You can't look at someone else's situation and say, wow, how could they let that happen? It just it can happen. It's insidious. Was, I don't know what people's reaction, obviously we'll talk about your family's reaction, and eventually there was an intervention, um, but you're living in a kind of a small town, a, a small Mormon town. That's what I want to get to. This, you know, Mormons are teetotalers, supposed to be. <laughs> and <Yes. laughs> does that exacerbate the reaction of that people have, have to uh, someone who's battling alcoholism? Oh, absolutely. It's it's um, it's a very um, difficult experience. Even before the alcoholism had taken hold, um, I was I was feeling this rebelliousness, you know, welling up inside me, just because it was such a different culture than I was used to growing up in California. You know, everyone. Well, I say everyone in quotes. Everyone was Mormon. Everyone was, you know, supposed to be a stay-at-home mom. Everyone was supposed to be living this perfect life. And I just, I kind of, I guess I have a rebellious streak in me that just thought, I'm just not going to be that way. I'm not going to toe that line. And so I turned to alcohol, and then, yes, absolutely, it was like I was a pariah because, you know, that's just not what's done. Mm. Um but like I said, it can happen to anyone. And, and I always complain that, you know, it's just not fair that my, you know, my thing that I had to go through was so public and so obvious. Um, but everybody goes through something. It's just that 
some of them, most of them are are behind closed doors or things that you never hear or see. Mm. It was interesting to me that uh, you write that you were, you know, sort of drifting away from from your uh, the faith of your youth. Your your husband, who had who had embraced it when he met you, he was he was embracing it. Yeah, that was that was another ironic twist to the whole story. Was the more that I rebelled against the religion that I had grown up in and that he had only recently converted to. Um, the more I rebelled, the more he clung to it, which even made it more difficult for us because I, I resented him even, even more when he, um, would, you know, cling to the church more than he would cling to me or if that's how I felt at the time. But in hindsight, it may, it makes a lot of sense to me because he was scared and he, he didn't know what else to do. And mm-hmm. so he just clung to it that much harder. Part of the thing for you, you were you were scared, right? You you talk about uh, postpartum anxiety, not postpartum depression, but postpartum anxiety for for one, you know, it was one part of it. Yes, it was it was devastating. And what was so scary is that I had no one to compare the situation to. My mother had never been through anything like that. My older sister had never been in, through anything like that. And so it was just so out of the blue. I didn't even know what it was for the first two, you know, two of my children. And then the the second two or the last two children, you know, I kind of had more of a idea of what it was, but it was, it was frightening because it wasn't the depression where you wanted to lay in bed and you couldn't get out of bed. It was just like fear and anxiety and, and wanting to run away from whatever it was, but there was really nowhere to run away from, you know, to run away too from it. So it was a very frightening thing and, and still is. I mean, I still battle anxiety and it does run in families. You know, I have kids and siblings who suffer from it too. And it definitely contributed to the whole crisis. So tell me how alcohol helped, you know, in, in quotes, <laughs> because ultimately uh, it doesn't help, yeah, but, but, but momentarily uh, it, it helped. Like I said, it started out more as kind of a, a little bit of a, you know, a rebellious thing I was doing, just like, well, I'm just going to do this just because I'm not supposed to. And it's kind of a, I was, um, I'd gone back to work at this time, full time, and I'd just go out socially with my colleagues just to, you know, kind of have some fun and kind of the social lubricant, you know, and it did, it, it kind of, it definitely smoothed out the edges and made me feel more relaxed and numbed, you know, the pain that I had, pain that I didn't really even realize I had. Um, and was very effective at that. Um, but then I remember there was one day when there was something particularly upsetting and painful that I thought, you know, I am going to get some alcohol to drink it, to, to numb this pain and to not feel it. And that's, I feel like that was the time where it just like clicked in the wrong direction. And when it became, you know, a problem for me, there's, you know, there's many, many people who can drink socially and it's, it's not a problem. But for me, that's, you know, that's when I knew, I didn't know at the time, but in hindsight I do, um, it clicked and that's when it started to go downhill and it wasn't helping. <laughs> it mm-hmm. was hurting. Well, as you say in the book, uh, you know, it numbs the pain. And if you're blacked out, you're not feeling any pain. Exactly. So, you know, and, I'm... but the very sad, ironic thing is that as soon as it wears off, then the pain comes back um, tenfold because not only do you have the same pain you had before you numbed it with alcohol, but now you have added guilt on top of it because you were drunk or you were passed out and, you know, who knows what happened while that happened. So you have the guilt and you have the anxiety and it's just 10 times worse, you know, when the alcohol wears off which it always will. Hmm. Let's take a break when we come back more with Jill Neistel. Her book is One Good Life. It's out from Putnam, and uh, she is uh, the author of uh, the very popular website, uh, One Good Thing by Jilly. Uh, gets uh, 4.6 million monthly page views. Uh, she has written for many publications, lives in Heber City with her husband Dave and their children, and uh, she's uh, telling tells a story in the book of her battle with alcoholism, her victory, and uh, now this unexpected success, which has come out of that uh, struggle. Uh, one of her uh, counselors at the, uh, at the treatment center told her the one thing she needed to do is find her passion. 
and uh, and to look for the positive, and that led to her seeking out one good thing every day. We'll continue this story following this break. Pianist Richard Good is 71 years old. Conductor Herbert Blomstead is 87. They recently pooled their 158 years of experience for concerts with the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and we'll hear their commanding performance of Mozart's Piano Concerto No. 27 on the next Performance Today from APM. Thursday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Congratulations to all graduates of Utah State University, including students of Kane College of the Arts, College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences, College of Engineering, College of Humanities and Social Sciences, College of Science, Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services, John M. Huntsman School of Business, and S&J and Jesse E. Quinney College of Natural Resources. UPR congratulates all graduates on their successes and wishes them all the best. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, proudly celebrating its 40th anniversary, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Details at utahhumanities.org. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We have with us on the line Jill Neistel. Uh, she is author of the very popular website, One Good Thing by Jilly. It gets uh, 4.6 million monthly page views. Uh, she lives in Heber City with her husband Dave and their children. Now she has told her story, uh, including her battle with alcoholism. It's One Good Life, My Tips, My Wisdom, My Story. It's out from uh, Putnam. And I uh, hope you'll join us uh, here on the program. If you have a question or comment, you can join us at 1-800-826-1495. That number is toll-free, 1-800-826-1495. And you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com. And Twitter, we're at Utah Public Radio. So, Jill Neistola, you uh, did some work for Channel 4 here in Utah, I believe. I did a a show for a few years there. I did. I was um, the producer of Good Things Utah for five years. And uh, one of the best jobs I ever had. I I just, I loved that job. I loved that creative job. outlet and that kind of was what I really missed when I started my blog mm-hmm. uh, so let's uh, continue this uh, the story you're you're in Heber City uh, you're uh, in a midlife crisis you've unfortunately turned to uh, to alcohol and um, imagine this is spiraling down what uh, what what do your kids think what do you, what do you what's the feedback you got from your kids at the time oh gosh um, as you can imagine it was it was pretty bad Um especially for the the older two. Um, my oldest was 18 about at the time, 17, 18. And um, my second oldest was 16, you know, very formative years. And it was, it was rough. The, the sad thing is though I, you know, being in the alcoholic fog that I was in, I didn't realize much of it until after the fact. Um, and the more that I sensed, you know, the chaos that I was, creating and the pain I was creating, the more I would retreat into the alcohol. So it was just, it was just, like you said, spiraling. And, um, but ultimately it was my kids that, that got me out of it. They were the only thing I think at that point that could have made me seek help because I got to the point where I realized they will not have another mom. I'm the only mom they're ever going to have. I need to do it for them. And so ultimately, I say they saved my life. Um, and one, uh, just before we get to the intervention, uh, uh, you missed a family Thanksgiving due to a uh, yes, black that was That I, I refer to as my rock bottom. I think every addict has to get to that point. You know, I, I skimmed along the bottom several points before that, but this literally my rock bottom when I, um, the night before Thanksgiving was supposed to go and meet with someone, um, a counselor kind of, you know, I was trying, you know, to get, get help sort of, you know, I didn't really want help. It was more my family's idea. Um, and I was so upset about the idea that I drank instead of going to a counseling appointment and ended up, basically in an alcoholic blackout um, where I woke up the next morning on Thanksgiving morning 
sitting on the couch of a Holiday Inn in Park City um, with someone's coat wrapped around me. Well, mm. I'll get emotional now. Wow. And <laughs> didn't know how I'd gotten there. And mm. was so, as you can imagine, uh, scared and appalled by the situation um, that I went back to my car where I had alcohol still in my car and continued to drink that. And basically, you know, I, I, I went home, you know, I, I headed towards home, but I couldn't, I couldn't face it. I couldn't make myself go home. And I basically drove around the back streets of the Heber Valley that entire day, um, in an alcoholic fog. Um, and with my phone turned off, nobody knew where, where I was. So I was basically missing, and um, out of, a contact for my family for 24 hours. Um, and somehow, by the grace of God, I got home that night without anything happening to me. And and that's when um, it was, that's where the intervention, that's where I realized, you know, I had hit my rock bottom and I needed help. What, uh, what why does someone with an addiction, why do they have to hit rock bottom? What, what happens? Uh, it's just, I kind of I describe it as it's it's more painful to continue on than it is to stop, um, and you have to have some real pain to get to that point because, like I said, the alcohol was helping you know was helping to, to get rid of that pain until it wasn't, and I think we all get to that point, but it it you know it takes a lot of pain and a lot of um, heartache before you do, unfortunately. Um, but, but until you reach that rock bottom, you're still gonna, you, as an, as an addict, you have in the back of your mind, uh, oh, next time it'll be better. You know, I, I won't do it next time. Tomorrow I'll stop. Um, but until you really have an experience like the one I had, um, you, you keep thinking, you know, I can do it on my own, but after that you, you realize you can't. Now you write that uh, you, you recognize at some point that you had some a lot of advantages over some of the you know, fellow patients there at the the ARC, is where you ended up in this treatment center. Uh, a lot of them had to be there, you know, court ordered. You went there not totally willingly, but at least you know after this intervention, you describe yourself as a, or your family having to corral a, a wild mare. So that's a bit yes. of image. Yeah, I, I people have asked me, you know, you say you were you um, were lucky, and, I, and, and to some extent, I, I believe that. I, I was very lucky. I had a support family. I had a solid um, foundation and upbringing, you know, where, whereas a lot of the people that I was in rehab with did not have that advantage. So I do feel like I had an advantage that way. But there was also the point where I had to make the decision to put down the bottle. That was not luck. That was just, you know, having to make the decision to, to do it. And, but having a supportive family was absolutely, you know, the best thing. And I'm mm. very, very grateful for. Now, when it comes to that decision, that has to be you alone, right? What, what factors into that? What, what helps you? What makes you, how do you, how do you make that decision? Uh, like I said, for me, it was, you know, I did hit, hit rock bottom, the pain, of continuing on, it had shifted where it was going to be more painful to continue on than to, to than to stop and to try and get help. Um, and it was the thought of my kids. I just I couldn't I couldn't do it for myself at that point. Wanted to do it. I didn't want to do it for me. I didn't want to do it for my husband. I just you know for me I could care less about me. But my kids weren't going to ever have another mom. And if I you know love them at all, I was going to try and get help for their sake. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's what it was. So tell me about the, the treatment. You uh, you write very favorably about the, the you know place you, you went. You were there for, what, 72, 78 days, something like that? <laughs> I was there for 78 days. I had very, as you, know, you can imagine, I very begrudgingly decided, okay, I'm going to get help, but you know my attic brain's like, it's going to be on my terms. I'm, I'm only going to do outpatient. Well... You know, the counselors convinced me quickly that, no, you need to do inpatient treatment. I'm like, okay, I'll do inpatient, but I'm only going to do it for 30 days, not one day longer. And they're like, okay, you know, we'll see. And and it ended up being 
78 days and by the time 78 days rolled around I was like don't make me leave <laughs> I was I I didn't want to I didn't want to leave because I had gotten so much help and I had healed so much um and it was just such a positive experience and I'm so grateful to them because it, it literally did save my life and you say now you have two birthdays you, you came out on your birthday I did. Ironically enough, I I graduated from the Ark of Little Cottonwood on my birthday, February twentieth, and so now I can I doubly celebrate that day as you know my birthday and as my rebirth day because I was able to come back and and reclaim my life and to move on to bigger and better things, things I never imagined. If you just joined us, we're talking with Jill Nystel. She lives in Hebrew City, and uh, she is author most recently of a book, tells her story, One Good Life. It's out from Putnam, and she's also author of the uh, very popular blog, uh, One Good Thing by Jilly. Uh, so tell me about the genesis of One Good Thing. This, this came out of treatment, I believe. It did. Um, I had some very wise counselors by the name of Laura and Gloria Boberg, and they told me that I needed to find my passion or I would end up right back where I started. And that was enough for me (laughs) um, to take them very seriously and at their word. When I got out of treatment, um, you're very, you're very vulnerable and fragile when you get out of treatment. So I, I, I always bring that up because I want um, people that have gone through it to realize that, you know, they need to take care of themselves. They need to be gentle with themselves. But after a, a certain amount of time of kind of getting back into life, I took that advice very seriously and thought, I, I've got to find my passion. So, because I do not want to end up back in that place. Oddly enough, the blog wasn't, when I started it, I didn't realize, oh, this is it. I found my passion. It was really more, I needed a creative outlet. I needed somewhere to put my ideas. Um, I missed my work with Good Things Utah. So I started the blog really just to kind of put one good thing out there a day, kind of along the one day at a time philosophy of AA. And it just, it just took off. It, it very quickly took off. And, and to this day, I, I'm just so grateful to my counselors for giving me that advice. It is a powerful idea, isn't it? Just you can find one good thing, right? Even if the day is really bad, you can find one good thing. Absolutely. One of the things that they taught us also in rehab and we talk about in the rooms of AA is keeping a gratitude journal and one, you know, at least one thing a day writing down something you're grateful for. Mm. And it's kind of the same thing with one good thing. There's, there's always, you can always find one good thing. And when I started the website, that was, I really consciously made the decision that I didn't want it to be a food blog. I didn't want it to be a craft blog. I didn't want it to be fashion blog or whatever. I just wanted it to be about anything that was of interest to me and that I thought would be useful to people. Hmm. What were some of the, you know, maybe pick it out one or two things early on in your, in, before it was even a blog in your journal, what, what were some of the things, one, you know, the good thing for the day? Well, just uh, like, um, it, oh, it started out so simple. Like if I went to the Store and I, and I happened across this really um, wonderful lotion that I love the smell of it. You know, I'd I'd blog about that. Or if I happened to, um, <clears throat> I love anything frozen, like frozen foods. And so if I happened to, I froze some grapes one day, and I thought, I wonder if these would taste good. And they turned out to be like my favorite treat of the summer. So just little things like that that were simple. I thought other people might find useful in their lives, and they just seemed to resonate with people. Mm. And what about when you started the blog? What were some of the early things you put out there? <laughs> one of the funniest, uh, one of the very earliest, and to this day, one of the most popular things I did was I just, um, I had yogurt. I was eating yogurt. Like I said, I like frozen things. So I thought, hmm, I want to put the yogurt in a Ziploc bag, snip off the end, and, and just make like frozen yogurt dots and put them on a cookie sheet and put them in the freezer and just kind of eat those like candy. And people went nuts <laughs> over it. It was just a simple idea that <laughs> people could, you know, go to the kitchen right that minute and try. And people loved it. So it doesn't have to be, you know, 
profound. I guess if you were trying to come up with some profound thought every day, that maybe the well would run dry, but just something positive, something good. One exactly, good thing. exactly. Yeah. But then I, you know, I also do what I hope are, you know, somewhat profound um, blog posts too, but but not every day. You know, I think I would mm-hmm. burn out if it, it was something like that every day. But I also, at the beginning, made a conscious decision that I wanted to blog every day. And that's pretty unusual in the blogging world. Usually people blog two or three times a week. I just wanted to do something every day. And if it's going to be something super simple, then it will be. And But it doesn't always have to, have to be. It's, it's, it kind of runs the gamut, and I like that. One, uh, one passage here. Um, you, you have a section in the book on breaking bad habits. Uh, I think we all deal with this. What, what advice can you give us? Well, I think, um, like I said er, earlier, it, it's hard for us. We're, we're such creatures of habits that we, we don't like change. It becomes uncomfortable until we get to the point where the prospect of not changing becomes more painful than continuing on in the same pattern, like with my alcoholism. So that is, I think, the point when we can find the willpower to do it. Otherwise, it's just it's so hard. And even then, it's hard because a lot of times we don't know how to affect that change. But, um, you know, just just starting out small and and honestly getting help if you need it, especially from an addict's perspective. I just, I, I don't know how many times I've told myself, well, I can do it. I can do it on my own. I can do it on my own. And there just comes a point where you can't. And whether it's alcoholism or whether it's, um, I don't know, like hoarding or whatever problem that you have. Sometimes you need help. And whether it's just a good friend to talk to or it's an actual professional, you know, don't be afraid to reach out for that. And you stress, as I've heard, you know, many uh, addicts uh, say this, that there's no point in which you're recovered. You're, you're, always, you're always recovering. You're always in recovery. Absolutely. In recovery. Never recovered. Um, uh, when I see, you know, recovered alcoholics, you know, some people might write that here or there um, accidentally or whatever. It's, it always kind of makes me cringe because, no, it's, it's, never, it's never recovered. It's, all, it's a constant battle. Um, and there's definitely times where, you know, times of added anxiety or things that will trigger that, you know, I just you always have to be on guard, um, unfortunately. And so that's, that's another piece of wisdom I try to give people. I'm like, okay, so I went through this life-changing experience, and I came out the other side, and, and I have been successful. And so, you know, people ask, would you go through it again? No, I wouldn't. If I had to choose over, I would not, because there, I will always battle it now. I always have to be on guard against it. There were some awful consequences of it, so no, I would not go through it again. But, you know, I didn't have the choice. You know, life throws us, throws at it, us what it will, and Thankfully, I came out the other side, and and things are are good now. But yeah, it's not something I would choose again. That is an interesting question, as you say, you treat it in the book. What, you know, what if you had the knowledge going in? Because it's it's kind of double sided, isn't it? You you don't want to relive those experiences, but you value the the wisdom you gained. It is. It it is such a yeah. It's I don't know. I absolutely can state that you know if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't go through it. But like I said, we all are going to go through something. So the fact that this is what I had to go through, and now if I can turn it around and help other people who are going through it who feel like they're the only one, which is definitely how I felt. I felt like no other mother or wife or, you know, LDS person would ever do anything like this. Um, I definitely felt like I was completely alone. So that is just so important to me as, you know, the fact that I did go through this, I can't change that. Now, hopefully, I can help someone who's also going through the same thing to feel like they're not the only one. What would you say, uh, what advice would you give if, uh, you know, friend or family member is going through an addiction? What uh, what, what to do? Uh, <clears throat> it's so hard. Um, hope. There's always hope. Never give up hope um, is the first thing that I would say. And then just consider, you know, what you have to lose. You know, is it worth it? Is this is this substance that you're leaning on, you know, worth losing your family, losing your freedom, losing your life? 
very real possibility. And, um, you know, if you're lucky enough, like I am, to lean on that family that loves you and have been there for you your entire life and trust that they are not trying to just be mean to you if they're trying to get you help. They really care about you. And it's so hard when you're in the grips of an addiction. You know, your your brain is literally hijacked. So it's it's so hard to think clearly, but to just hold on to the fact that if, you know, someone's trying to get you help, they have good intentions and they want to help you because they love you. It's not because they're trying to meet, be mean to you. And then just never give up. I mean, just think about what it is out there that, that you want to save yourself for. And for me, it was for my kids. I just, I'm like, I, that is the only thing I could hang on to at that point. After I was able to detox and get through the fog, I was, I realized all the other things I had to live for, but I was able to cling to the thought of my kids. And so if you can find that one thing that you can cling to and, and always have hope. Just uh, two or three minutes left. Uh, I want to end the conversation here with uh, your chapter on marriage. That's one of the great things that happened, right? Against Maybe against some odds, uh, you and Dave, uh, your marriage survived. Um, and I was very struck by um, this passage from your husband. This is a word or two from Dave to me, you say in, in your book. Uh, I guess you had him write write something or... I, I did. That was, um, <clears throat> excuse me, actually an idea that my editor had, and I just thought, oh, man, that's just so appropriate for him to at least to have one portion of this book, because if it weren't for him, you know, this book wouldn't be written. Um, he was an amazing, amazing um, defender, you know, for me, and, and it's so unusual for a couple that has gone through what we have gone through. I mean, we were, we were separated for a year. Um, so it was, we had marriage issues and the addiction issue. And for him to, you know, have stayed with me through it all is just really incredible. And I'm just so grateful to him. And, and I do try and get that across to people that, you know, you can go through hard things and still stay together. It's, it's not easy, but, you'll be so glad unless there's, you know, some compelling reason for you not to stay together married. It's just, if you can weather the storm and ride it out, uh, oh, I'm just so grateful that he never gave up on me, even though I was, you know, I tried really hard to push him away. <laughs> he, he never did. So that's... Uh, this, this passage, I just wanted to just have about a minute. I want to get your reaction to this. Uh... Uh, he says, one of the most valuable things I learned through our challenges was that I had to let go of my idea of what the perfect wife and mother should be. And I had to give you the time and space to become the kind of wife and mother you were going to be. Yes. And then, um, ironically, when he was able to do that, then I became even more than he ever wanted or knew that he wanted or expected. So that's a life lesson in itself. You know, let let people be who they're going to be, and then they may surprise you and be even better than what you thought you wanted. And you have some advice in the book. We've talked earlier about communication, that uh, you should work on communication. And, uh, and, and then this idea that you just made reference to uh, just a minute ago, um, time. If you can, if you can, Absolutely. You can stay, stick in there, time becomes your ally. Absolutely, because, you know, you, this is a person that you, you you chose to marry them for a very good reason, or you would not have made that leap to get married. Um, try to remember that, first of all, you know, why did you get married? And then remember, you have this history together, um, and a lot of times you have children together, and that's so valuable, and it's so hard to replace. So if you can weather the storm, give time a chance. Um, it's just so worth it in the end. Well, it's a very interesting read, and there, there's much more in here. And there's uh, you have your your top tips uh, here as well. One Good Life is the book. Jill Neistel is the author, and uh, you can check out her very popular website, uh, One Good Thing by Jilly. Jill Neistel, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It certainly has. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. And uh, join us tomorrow. We'll have uh, Sherry Quinn with the science uh, topic. And then on Monday, we're going to look at the emotional brain, brain and emotions. That's coming up tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. Stress is a normal reaction to the over-decreasing demands of life, but learning how to control and handle stress can better improve your quality of life. Start out with identifying the source of your stress. 
Having the knowledge of what your stressors are and where they come from can help you learn how to handle them. Look at how you currently cope with stress and either change the situation or change your reaction. Avoid unnecessary stress. Alter the situation, adapt to the stressor, accept the things you cannot change, and make time for yourself. Taking a walk outdoors, drinking a cup of tea, calling up a friend, meditation and deep breathing are just a few things you can do to relieve some stress. This is Nicole Jackson for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Remember to live well, work well, and be well. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about the traveling gypsies who brought excitement to small towns all over Utah in the early 1900s. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. To most residents of rural Utah in the early 1900s, summertime meant hauling hay, digging ditches, irrigating crops, and tending livestock. Other than the usual town parties, there was very little diversion from the monotony of farm labor. That is, not until traveling groups of gypsies showed up and stirred up excitement in small communities all over Utah. From Garland to Kanab and towns in between, news of these exotic visitors spread quickly. Most gypsies were of Balkan and Eastern or Central European descent and had come to the United States at the turn of the century. Their traveling lifestyle took them from town to town, leading caravans of wagons, horses, dogs, and children. They generally traveled in groups of five to ten families, camped on the outskirts of town, and stayed a few weeks before moving on. Utah residents who remember gypsies coming to their communities reported the experience with great fondness, if not some stereotyping. Gypsy men apparently wore large hats and spangled vests, while women wore full skirts and bright scarves. Gypsies earned a living by horse trading or telling fortunes, and sometimes by begging or stealing. But most stories focus on gypsies entertaining townspeople. In Manti, for example, one resident remembered a group of gypsies that owned a dancing black bear and a monkey that sat atop an organ grinder catching nickels. In Oak City, a singer entertained visitors for hours at the city hall with his extensive repertoire. In Elsinore, another man performed rope tricks in an hour-long demonstration that was the highlight of the town's 4th of July celebration. By the 1930s, a combination of industrialization, the automobile, and the Great Depression forced many gypsies into sedentary urban settings, which brought an end to their intensely mobile way of life. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by the Utah Division of State History. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Sometimes in radio, it's easiest just to let the tape do the talking for you. So here you go. Leave some of your common sense at home and actually try something printed or pink or sequined or fun. I'm Kai Rizdahl, designer clothes straight to your door, a CEO guided tour of Rent the Runway next time on Marketplace from APM. Thursday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.